Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that you did lift us out of sin and darkness and separation, lifted us out of the debt of sin, which no one else and nothing else could ever overcome except you and your grace. I praise you, God, that you didn't just do it, but you continue to do it, and you will continue to do it as a faithful God with people striving to be like you. We praise you, God, for who you are, and praise you for your love this day that we pray doesn't just stay with us, but permeates from us, showing the world and those around us who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please go ahead and be seated. And as you get settled, uh, it is actually important for stand up before long periods of sitting down, especially for a preacher. I remember in the Air Force one time, we went up, we stayed up to march, and we did a quick march. We were sitting down somewhere. Anyway, uh, the guy in front of me actually got lightheaded and fell over. And of course, we had to step over him because, you know, you don't stop. It's like, oh, there's Alex. Oh, well. <laughs> also, quick note, real quick. <laughs> True story. It's like, there's no compassion. It's like, good luck, man. Speaking of good compassion, though, I will second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, however many people we have in our family, the Gospel Project. I'm excited about it. Um, it's been a good curriculum. I used it back in South Dakota. We use it in our family for our Bible time and our Bible education. It's a great thing. It's a great thing for the adults as well. Um, Ryan didn't talk about this, but the workbooks they have are very, very well laid out, very easy to follow for teachers, but it's just a really good program. So thank you, McPartlands, and uh, the rest of the Education Committee for taking that on and deciding that. That will be a big blessing uh, to this congregation. We are finishing up a series today. I know it says August 29th. Uh, bless me, congregation, and Father Price, and I, I lied. Uh, we're finishing up the series today. Uh, next week will be something different. But we're finishing up the series today about love is. And before we wrap it up, uh, maybe not a very pretty bow, but put some sort of bow on this, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that we have had some verbs, some action words, some nouns that we have used to describe love. Well, today we're going to delve really into what love is as far as what do you define love as? And I want to just say this before the first video. We were spoiled today. There's a lot of videos today. Love is important, but how do you define what love is? Words matter, as does this video read by Benedict Cumberbatch of possibly one of the best cover letters ever. Words matter. Dear sir, I like words. I like fat, buttery words such as ooze, turpitude, gluttonous, toady. I like solemn, angular, creaky words such as straight-laced, cantankerous, pecunious, valedictory. I like spurious, black-as-white words such as mortician, liquidate, tonsorial, demimond. I like suave V words such as svengali, svelte, bravura, verve. I like crunchy, brittle, crackly words such as splinter, grapple, jostle, crusty. I like sullen, crabbed, scowling words such as skulk, glower, scabby, churl. I like, oh heavens, my gracious, landsake words such as Trixie, Tucker, Gentile, horrid. I like wormy, squirmy, mealy words such as crawl, blubber, squeal, drip. I like sneakily chuckling words such as cowlick, gurgle, burble, and burp. 
I like the word screenwriter better than copywriter. So I decided to quit my job in New York in an advertising agency and try my luck in Hollywood. Before taking the plunge, I went to Europe for a year of study, contemplation, and horsing around. I've just returned, and I still like words. May I have a few with you? Robert Parash. So that writer, as you may have caught at the end, named Robert Parash, uh, if you didn't catch it, he was a copywriter in New York, and he wanted to work as a screenwriter in Hollywood. So he sent this cover letter to several big agencies who hired screenwriters. He actually got, just from that cover letter, three interviews with major studios, and several years after he wrote that letter, he wrote this film, Battleground, to which he won both the Academy Award and Golden Globe for. So it did all right. He's also nominated for another uh, screenplay two years later. Words matter, and words are good, but screenwriters know that words matter. Not just the words themselves, but what you think and what I think and what we all think the words mean. For example, what does love mean? Well, it might differ depending on your experience, on your mood, on your uh, definition of what, if it's a noun or a verb, usage, it might differ based on how you use it. For example, what does love versus something that is loving mean versus something that is lovable versus lovely? I know what I mean by lovely. I mean my wife. But what do you mean by lovely? You better not mean my wife. No, <laughs> no she, she is lovely and you may call her because she is. So that's just a fact. But what do these mean? And we've talked about before, can you love pizza as much as you love your spouse, as much as you love going on a walk, as much as you think a sunset is lovely? What does this mean? Well, the Bi <laughs> I was going to say the Bible doesn't give us much help. The Bible does. Thesauruses don't give us much help because just offhand, if you type in synonyms for love, here's what you get. <clears throat> Affection, appreciation, devotion, emotion, fondness, friendship, infatuation, lust, passion, respect, taste, tenderness, yearning, adulation, allegiance, amity, amorousness, amour, adore, attachment, case, cherishing, crush, delight, devotedness, enchantment, enjoyment, fervor, fidelity, flame, couldn't do it in one breath, hankering, idolatry, inclination, involvement, like, partiality, piety, rapture, regard, relish, sentiment, weakness, worship, zeal, ardency, mad for, and soft spot. It's all cleared up now, right? Especially if you look at some of these... What love is thesaurized as, I don't think that's a word, but it is now. Look, idolatry, lust, amour, fervor, rapture. Some of these words we have theological issues with. Why do you have issues with those words, by the way? Because you have a bias, you have a background, you have a perspective, you have a worldview. I'm making the point to say that simply looking up the word doesn't always help, nor just simply relying on the fact of I trust you to know what the word means. It should go without saying, but if my love for... I'll just use what I said before. I'll tell you what, ice cream. We have that a little bit different. My love for ice cream matches the love for my kids. There's a problem. So what do we mean? We need not just a definition... But we need some sort of example. And we need not just an example. We need some sort of standard by which to compare what we mean. 
In fact, many of you know that the word canon, meaning like the canon of Scripture, is a word that means standard. It means it comes from a word that actually literally means like measuring stick. And so if you say the canon of Scripture, you're really saying the standard of Scripture. And so when you mean the standard of love, we could say the canon of love or the measurement of love. What is the best measurement, definition, example of love? It's not a rhetorical question, per se, but I bet you could guess within a couple. Our final word, to bring everything together, hopefully, love is Christ-like. Hopefully that's no surprise. Love is Christ-like, Christ-like in word, Christ-like in heart, and Christ-like Christ-like in action, in word, in heart, and in action. Well, let's start with word offhand. Why is saying love is Christ-like the best definition or standard example for love? Well, let's go to John. Eric read John chapter 3. We'll come around to that in about 12 and a half minutes, hopefully. Don't time me. I will disappoint you. In the beginning of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, why does this matter? Well, many of you might know that the word, word, in Greek, is this word, logos, or logos. Now, this can be a word like you read, but it's most likely not. In fact, it's hardly ever used as a word in which you read when it's the logos. Why? Because logos means something much, much bigger. This has been around since since 6th century or 7th century B.C., depending on who you read or who you wanted to believe came up with the term. There have been whole books written on the Greek philosophy of the Logos, because it's not just a Christian perspective, it's something that John is, in essence, borrowing from Greek and redefining properly because of what the Logos is. What is the Logos? Well, put simply, this is the best definition I could find, the easiest definition I could find, the Logos is the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. You see what I mean? It's not just a word like you read or a word like, um, you know, if I give you my word or, or a word like, oh, it's the word of the day. The logos in Greek is the idea of everything. If you're Star Wars nerds, it's like the force. It binds us, penetrates us, pulls the galaxy together. That's exactly what the Logos is in the Greek mindset. It's the divine reason. Now, they didn't mean divine as in a, the God or a God. They meant divine meaning whatever's kind of up there beyond humans. Granted, the divine reason implicit in the cosmos. Now, camp on that for a minute. It means that this, whatever the Logos is, the idea, the form, the power, the, the reasoning, the understanding, the purpose... Whatever it is, is implicit in the cosmos. It's in the cosmos. It's the threads that hold the very everything together. It's the very tap, if, if the cosmos is the tapestry, the logos is the threads that hold it together. Literally the weave on why the galaxy, why the cosmos, why everything is the way it is. Not just that it is, but why it is and the way it is. Ordering it and giving it form and meaning. Keep that in mind too. The logos is not just a disembodied idea but it's actually something which has come close in the sense of why there is a thing. What's the point of a tree? What's the point of the sun? What's the point of this? What's its meaning? What's its function? Why is it here? How does it impact? All that was a big mouthful. All that is implicit in this term, logos. 
Do you see why John used it to refer to Christ? In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos, this big, huge thread that binds the galaxy together, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Logos was not just any power, but the God in which I am talking about, and not just the God I'm talking about, the very Christ I'm going to tell you about, who was with God in the beginning, who is part of God. There's a reason that John uses this term because it's truer than any Greek philosopher knew it would be of Jesus. There's scriptures, I don't have them up here. I invite you to look at them yourself. There's scriptures all, all over the place saying that Jesus, First Peter 1.20 is uh, one of them, for example, meaning that God pre-ordered, predestined the world to be saved through Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ was there in the beginning, and the implicit reason, the implicit thread through everything is Christ himself. Everything up to Christ was pointing to him, and everything from Christ is simply reflecting him. Christ is truly the Logos. So why is love, Christ-likeness, in word. Well, what you can do from this is you can say a couple things. If we know from other scriptures that God himself is love, not like love, not loving, is the very essence, the very definition of love, and Christ is of him, what's another thing you can say is the very essence, is the very implicit thread that runs through the entire cosmos, binding everything together, connecting it, what's the meaning and order of everything? Implicitly, it's love. Do you see that? If God is love, Christ is from Him, showing us in human form, that's what Christ is. If Christ isn't just something separate of God. Christ is showing us what God would be like if He was human. God is showing, God is showing us through Christ what we need to be like if we are like God as humans. So Christ is simply reflecting who God is in that moment. In a way that we can understand but Christ is showing us who God is. And what does First John say over and over and over? God is love. Thus, when Christ is reflecting the Logos, this apparent huge thread that is implicit in the entire cosmos, he's reflecting who God is. Who is God? God is love. So, let's bring this huge idea down for a minute. Love is Christ-like in word, in this case meaning logos, because Christ, by his very nature, Christ by reflecting God, is showing us one of the big, constant truths of the universe, which is love. Let me put it another way. When you love someone, when you are truly loving someone, not for gain, not for selfish reasons, not to try to get something, but when you are truly loving someone as God is loving them, or at least getting close, you are reflecting the base principles of our universe. Crazy. I want to make a joke about trying to say, like, you know, next time you talk to your spouse, I Andromeda Galaxy, you, you know, cosmos, you know, kind of thing. Probably not but you're reflecting the base truths and threads of the cosmos. Now, here's the thing. I have this very briefly in here because one of the biggest things 
that I hear from people who when I talk about that, the basic truth of the universe is love, they're like, well, I don't see a very loving world, I don't see a very loving earth, I don't see a very loving people. This is not necessarily part of where I'm going today, but this is important. This I'm going to invite you to write down if you ever encounter this, project, this objection. When it comes to this universe that God created and the fact that we have possibility for badness and evil, you have to ask yourself real quick, well, what are the possibilities that God could have created? Well, there are basically four. God could, could have created a world, a universe, in which there was only good. Right? Sounds nice. God could have created a world in which there was only bad, meaning we couldn't help but do one or the other. Different, but not very much, is God could have created a world in which the choice of good and bad were not possible. Put another way, God could have created humans' creation as, as a very simplistic illustration, as robots who could only do what God defined as good things, or only do what God defined as bad things, or we are aware of things but could not choose either one. What's the problem with that? That's something I've talked about before. If you had a wife, if I had a wife, I do have a wife, but if I have another wife and she was a robot, right, and there's a little button right here that said kiss, and every time that I wanted to kiss, I would go up, press the button, and because she was programmed that way, or it was programmed that way, she was compelled to kiss me. Maybe there's another button over here that said love me. You know, you're wonderful, Tom. I don't know what it looks like, but I, <laughs> the whole point is I would tell her it, the robot, kiss me, love me, do this. What's the problem there? That's compulsion. That's obedience. That's not love. What does love require? Why is relationships, why are relationships that are so precious to you, so precious to you? Because they could leave. Choice is inherently not even advisable. Choice is inherently essential to love. Hence we have this world, to where a world in which humans can choose bad or good. Loving or not, good or evil. And it's this one, this last world, I hope you see, it's this last world is the only one in which love is possible. Because love is a choice. Love is not something you can command. Love is something you are gifted. Love is something to be treasured, never commanded. The reason your relationships are so wonderful is because they could leave. That's why it's so hard to get in some relationships, because you have to be vulnerable and you have to open yourself up to them leaving, but that's why it's so worth it. God feels the same way. The only universe in which love is possible, which if love is the intrinsic threat in the universe, it better be possible. But also, coming down a little bit, from that, it's also important that we do indeed know Christ in word, meaning read the Bible. Where is it? Now, there are a multitude, if you ever have doubts, there are a multitude of other sources, extra-biblical sources, Jewish sources, pagan sources, Roman sources, that verify that Jesus Christ existed as a person. Scholars who are hardcore atheists cannot deny the existence of Christ. They cannot do it. If you really want to get a good laugh, there's a debate between John Lennox and Richard Dawkins where Dawkins says Christ may have existed. And Lennox is like, dude, you're a scholar. No one denies that. And later on he goes, oh yeah, that's right. 
The existence of Jesus Christ is undeniable as a historical fact. But, where is the only place you can learn about who he was, how he acted, what he did, why he did it, why he loved? Right here. The New Testament is the only source for that. Thus, you cannot love without knowing who Christ is. To know what love is, is to know who Christ is. When you love, even if you don't know who Christ is, you are reflecting who Christ is and who God is. You just don't realize it. Because where is the source of love? God. Christ. The inherent threat in the universe. Thus, in order to know what love is, we as Christians must constantly, constantly, be coming back to the Word. Not just reflecting what the base idea of the universe is, but to actually open up the Gospels. I don't care how many times you've read it. To be reminded not only of who Christ is, but still continue to get to know Him yourself. Illustrate this point. Whenever I was deployed and I didn't have uh, cell phone service or anything like that, the letters that Amy would send me over email or over Facebook... I would use very precious command post time and I would print them out and I would take them with me. There was a time where I was out of cell phone range for like two and a half weeks, scared Amy to death. <laughs> the only thing I had were like two or three letters that she wrote. Without being too sappy, you know how many times I read those? Not because I didn't know what they said. I would about memorized them. But by reading them, I felt closer to her even though I was far away. God has given you his love letter with the groom waiting at the wedding. We don't read Scripture to simply know about Christ. We read Scripture to know him, to be close to him, to love him, to want to have a deeper relationship with him. That's why we have the Gospels. Unless we do that, I'm not even saying that it's a good idea, you should. I'm saying unless we read Christ, we cannot know truly what love is. Which leads us <clears throat> to being Christ-like in heart. It's interesting, out of however many chapters of the Gospels, however many scriptures written about him, there's only one place, only one place that I could find where Christ ever actually reveals his heart, at least in as explicit a term as this is what's in my heart. And it's right here in Matthew. He says, Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does it say, I wonder, about Jesus who says, whenever he says, you know what I'm like in my heart? You know what I strive to be like in my heart? You know what I reflect in my heart? You know what my heart strives for? to be gentle and lowly? One, how many of us would have said that of Christ? What's Christ's heart like? Gentle and lonely. First, second, third, fourth, ninth, eleventh. Second of all, how many of us would choose to describe ourselves that way? Well, let's get into some of what this means. What does it mean to be gentle? Well, in its noun form, there's only three other spots in the New Testament to where this is used. One is actually where Jesus rides gently on a donkey. <laughs> it 
gentleness is talked about in Galatians 5. What does it mean? What does lowliness mean? We don't like that word. It's kind of an insulting word. I mean, how many of you just offhand, you know, that, that Eric, he's lowly. Yeah, which one? That's what <laughs> I saw Eric like, he's talking about you, bro. <laughs> Who else? I, I didn't want to pick on a, on, a, on a lady, and you two are here, so you know. <laughs> Case in point, we laugh because, like, that's kind of mean. Gentle and lowly. The best two words I can come up with, and there are a lot of words we could talk about for the sake of the sermon, not to overload you. I've already overloaded you probably a little bit. Gentle and lonely can be redescribed very easily right from the Greek as humble and accessible. Gentle does not mean harsh. It means easy to talk to. It means soft in response. It means humble. It means being able to, to admit things. It means being able to be a certain way, humble, accessible. Maybe not what you think of from lowly, but remember what lowly, blessed are the poor in spirit for those of the kingdom of heaven, same idea. Blessed are the meek, same idea. Those who are accessible, those who are humble, those who don't think more of themselves than they ought, those who admit they don't have it figured out, or maybe necessarily all together, those who are able to to invite people to talk to them and, and hear their confession. This is a great... Who on earth would you be comfortable hearing your deepest, darkest confession? They're the definition of gentle and lowly. Because you're not going to get a harsh response and they're accessible enough that you're willing to tell them. Perfect example. Is there anyone like that? They're getting rarer and rarer. (laughs) I could... I could... uh, I could press a little bit and say... Who's like that in the church? Who's like that in the leadership? Who's like that, you know? Are you like that? Hopefully you're thinking that yourself. I won't go there. Why does it matter that Jesus was humble and accessible? Well, this is from scholar David Dane Orland. He says, The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. What is love? If love is Christ-like, not only does he reflect the very nature of the universe, not only do we read about it, but the very posture that Christ first assumes. Is it any wonder why the people who were most beat up, who the people who were most beaten down by society, were the first to come to Jesus? Why? Because people who sought him, he had the biggest set of arms wide for them that a human could. The question is obviously, and I talked about a little bit like a little bit of this last week when we talked about the Christian perception among the world. If someone needs someone with open arms, is a church the first place they go? Is a Christian the first person they go to? You want to know something in ministry of the last ten years? The societal respect of preachers, Barna and people who study this have watched this go down. We used to be ministers, clergy, church leaders, elders, shepherds, whatever, have deacons. It used to be if you were a deacon, shepherd, preacher, you were a very respectable person in society. Like you would be sought after by people in society because you had a reputation by virtue of your position. You know, you want to know where that is? It's back in the 1960s. Not true anymore. 
You want to know the looks I get? I've been advised. I was talking about this with, with someone not that long ago. On airplanes, I am somewhat hesitant to say that I'm a minister. Not because I'm afraid of talking about Jesus, but because oh, I'm a minister. Oh. I've actually been advised by people, say you're in communications or community service or organizational leadership. I'm like, <laughs> usually I just say, what do you do? And just leave it at that. Case in point, the church, preachers, Christians are not the people people go to anymore by virtue of some of our own actions, some of societal shifts. It's just a truth. But the reason this is so important is because churches that will still continue to matter to our communities will be gentle and lowly and be the people that obviously assume the posture of open arms instead of fingers pointed in judgment. Do people sometimes need judging and correction? Yes. Is that the first way you begin a conversation? Some Christians it is. Christ-like love is being gentle and lowly to bring people in out of love, which leads us back almost full circle. What's the first word we talked about in this series? Action. Right? The question is, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. The question is, what if, just another theoretical situation real quick, what if Jesus came, died on the cross, rose from the grave, except didn't tell anyone and no one knew about it? But one day someone said, hey, did you hear about Jesus? He did this. And Well, how do I know? Well, just don't worry. He did it. Well, you have to believe it's the same way you treat the people who call you after dinner or used to call you about your car's extended warranty. It's like, go away. There's a friend of mine, sorry, there's a friend of mine who talked about how he had a telemarketer who was trying to sell him house insurance and he started crying on the end of the, on the other phone and the guy's like, what's wrong, mister? And he's like, well, well you talking about my house. Last night my house burned down. And the guy said, I'm sorry, and hung up. And the guy was like, I wonder how long it took this guy to realize that if my house burned down, how am I talking to him on the phone? But... Back in landlines, you know. You would treat anyone who said, hey, Christ is this, without verifiable action, without history, without... <laughs> this is the sort of thing... And I'm not trying to insult. I mean, I don't know how to insult by saying they're, they're not correct, but I don't want to insult any other lines of thought. But this is the problem with a lot of other religions. They are word only. Meaning, there's a teaching. There's a doctrine which... For some reason, if you aspire to this, this will happen. And the answer, or the question I always want to ask is, says who? Christ is the only religion out there that I know of which has not only irrefutable historical fact, but its doctrine and teachings is based not on someone just simply saying something, but from someone doing something for you, for the world. And that matters. Put another way, this is the same idea as why is it so hard to teach kids how to do something? Why? Because, hey, you shouldn't do that. Okay, I won't. What happens two minutes later? 
They're doing it again. Stop touching that. It's inevitable. And of course, what kids try to say is, I won't, I promise. And as a parent, you're going, yeah. <laughs> and so you keep washing them, and nonetheless, they do it again. We know this. Some of you are still there. You know, it's just, we know what it's like to have an actionless promise. We know what it's like to have words only which have no truth in reality because reality is determined by what you do, not just what you say. It should be both. We'll come to this in a minute. Actions back up your words, usually not the other way around. Now, eventually you want to get to the point where words are backed up by your actions, but actions inherently back up your words, first and foremost. There's another clip here I want to show you. Actually, it's a song. Um, anyone seen Fiddler on the Roof? Well, some of you some of you be familiar with this. If, if your lifelong dream has been to watch Fiddler on the Roof, and you haven't seen it yet, and you want no spoilers, this is your chance to run out of the room. There's not any spoilers, but, you know, it's, you know, it shows you some dynamics. To set the scene in Fiddle on the Roof, which is probably one of my top three musicals. I'm not like music. I'm, I don't do musicals like I do scripture. Scripture is like whenever I'm studying is my favorite. No, I have very clear defined musical favorites. This is up there. In this scene, there's been trouble in the town, and one of their children, it looks like it's gonna, he's going to run off. They're going to run off with this new guy from out of town, and they're struggling with this newfangled concept of, why are you going? Because I love him. What? Enjoy. Do you love me? Love. Golden, do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you? Well? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out. Go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Uh, no, Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? Well... For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Golden, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was shy. I was nervous. So was I. But my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking, Golda, do you love me? I'm your wife. I know. But do you love me? Do I love him? Well? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? That you love me. I suppose I do. And I suppose I love you too. It doesn't change a thing. But even so. 
after 25 years, it's nice to I bring that up <clears throat> because it illustrates the point. Why did they finally determine that I suppose I do love you? Not because they ever said the words, but because they acted that way for 25 years. They acted in such a way that was loving. So therefore, I suppose I do. This actually is a very important point for Christians because you can feel love from actions without words, but rarely ever from words without action. Think about that for a minute. You can feel loved from actions without words, but rarely from words without action. We have the extremes. We have the guy who never says, I love you. You know, the guy who... Uh, been married 25 years and finally the wife's like you know you could say I love you once in a while and he's like well I told you on our wedding day if that changes I'll let you know then we have the other side I love singing the rain everyone another favorite music I love you I love you I love you I love you and you're late you never are home you don't do anything with me what do you really think you can feel love from actions without words, but rarely from words without action. The whole point of this, hopefully you can see where I'm going as I finish up today, is this is intrinsic in the gospel story. It's not just something someone wrote down, but it's something which someone came and did. God created. Jesus became. Jesus gave up. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus gives. It's all action words the benefit of us, the whole creation. And therefore, when people say, what does the church look like? Hopefully they don't say a chicken. It gets worse the more you look at it, I know. When people say, what does the church look like? What's the answer? It ought to be Christ-like. Which, what is Christ-like love? Love that is in action. Love that is kind. Love that is vulnerable. Love that is present. Love that is radical. It should be the same thing that if Christ was here right now, which he kind of is, he would be telling us to do right what we're doing, to keep reflecting him, loving people in ways that lead people to him and look like him. How we define love is important. Not even though I did it at the end, the first thing should be Christ-like. Because if our love is indeed Christ-like, and we know what that means, it follows just fine what that means.
Church, brothers and sisters, love is Christ-like. And everything else that means, therefore, let's commit to being at minimum that to each other, to the world. And because Jesus himself deserves it, 